Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Matt Dunn beat me to it, and uh, I'm impressed. Matt's got the wordplay down today. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, it's Matt Morgan. If you boil a funny bone, Joseph, it becomes a laughing stock. <laughs> hey, I get it. That's that's actually really funny. I like that one. Your, your chat jokes aren't supposed to be funny, Matt. No, they're not. I was supposed to embarrass myself, but uh, it seems that I have failed at that goal. You have failed at embarrassing yourself. If you're going to fail at something, that's the thing to fail at, I've got to say. Uh, uh, next, yeah. <laughs> next to the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. I think I'm the only uh, one of us three podcasters who burned himself on bacon grease at two different times today. I think that that's <laughs> true. I feel like there's a story there, but I'm also thinking that I maybe don't want to hear about it because it could be weird. It, and it, I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the cast, we're going to give all that data a little more context. What's our topic this week, fellas? Bacon grease. No. <laughs> no, wait, no. That's Dana, I think we need to uh I think we need to move on. <laughs> it hurts, Joey. I'm sorry. Both my skin and my ego. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what is our actual topic? <laughs> the building blocks to a commander deck. That's right. We want to categorize the pieces of our decks. There are a lot of theories about how to create a template for a commander deck, but, you know, we want to sort of look at that critically and see whether that actually works for our own particular decks, because sometimes individual decks don't actually follow a very clean template, and each individual deck can require a whole lot of different building blocks than other decks like that. You guys ready? Let's do it. I'm all game. Good, because first I want to ask if you guys played any fun games recently. So I have, actually. I uh, played a nifty game. I was actually double-queued, so I went to go play Modern, and it looked like Modern wasn't going to fire. So we sat around, we played a Commander game, and I told him, okay, well, if you know if it does start up, you know, this guy and I will both be playing a game of Commander. So they started the, the Modern halfway through the game, so he and I actually got paired together. So we played Modern on one side of the table, and then we rotated 90 degrees and played Commander with two other people. <laughs> so uh, that was fun oh, to nice. begin with. <laughs> like I, I, and I was looking at two hands, and at one point I had the hands switched around, and I was playing Infect in Miri, and I was like, no, this is, def- this is wrong. <laughs> um, but I actually, the game was won because the Moldrotha player got out of Sepulchral Primordial and then reanimated my, uh, oh my goodness, what's her name? Sophie Eric's daughter, her, the one that you can sacrifice to bring something back. Mm. Uh, so what happened was the Moldrotha player got out the Primordial, got Sophie Eric's daughter and a couple other creatures. It didn't really matter. But then 
he passed a turn with a altar of dementia out and looked and, and somebody played a board wipe and he realized, well, I'm going to sack Safi and I'm going to bring back the primordial and then I'm going to sack primordial to mill somebody. And then he looks for a second. And he's like, oh, and then I'm going to bring back primordial and then I'm going to bring back Safi and I'm going to mill everybody out. <laughs> so I lost my own Safi Eric's daughter, which is the first time it's ever happened. And it felt kind of bad, but it was actually kind of fun to watch the wheel spin because he kind of sat there for a second looked at his hand in modern and then realized what combo he was going to do. So um, I ended up losing to him twice within five minutes in two different formats. <laughs> That's pretty great. And it's just a testament to how good reanimator is. It's, it's a testament to how good green white is because green white is what made it happen. So he, he couldn't have comboed off without Safi. I mean, he couldn't have come enough without the Sepulchre Primordial, but a yeah. distinction without a difference. We will agree to disagree. I'll play the reanimator. You'll play the Selesnia. I get it. I get it. Uh, Dana, how about you? Um, I had some pretty good games this week. I think the the only thing really of note here I'm going to mention is I did uh, get to use the new Horizon Lands in my Gliss of the Trader deck in a really useful way that I wasn't planning for, but somebody cast a board wipe when I had a pretty solid board side that I did not absolutely want to have go off. And I wasn't really prepared, so I'm like quick scrambling looking around, and it I, I, I said, just give me a second to figure this out, because I think there's something here, but I didn't know what it was. And I had a Vamp Tutor in hand. I was able to Vamp Tutor up a Heroic Intervention at the top of my library, and then crack the... Um, Golgari Horizon Land to draw the heroic intervention. Wow. To save my board state. Hmm. So, I mean, it it only took three cards to to get there, (laughs) but I got it done. How, how was, how was the card otherwise than being a corner case, save your board wipe? It was literally the first game I've had it in my, um, deck was that, that Horizon Land. That's the first time I've gotten to use it. Um, but hey, it's already felt great to use. So, I mean, yeah, that's a pretty good first run for sure. Well, however, I'm excited I think to... somebody wiped the board then a turn later. So, almost oh. or not, <laughs> but I don't care. It still was a good play. Yeah, I'm excited to see the ripple effects of all of those really cool Modern Horizons and also Core 20 cards uh, that are coming out because I think they're really, really spicy. So I'm excited to see them all actually like the impacts that they have on play for sure. So let's move into our actual main topic here about deck categorization and the building blocks of a deck. And I just want to ask first and foremost... If you guys had an impression before we actually started, you know, putting notes together for this topic, if you had an impression of what the categories are that you would use when sorting a deck or when you're putting a deck together, is there a template that you would use? Is there something that you know that you're looking for in every deck or is it more of an individual deck by deck case? What is your first initial thought when you are approaching either sorting out your deck or when you're going to approach building one? because that was sort of an exploratory thing for me. I don't think that I had actually thought about it very critically, but I'm wondering if you guys had a better impression of it when we started uh, getting together for this topic. Um, you know, I oftentimes hear on Command Zone, Josh Requi talk about, you know, running 10 draw sources, 10 ramp spells, 10 removal spells. Um, so so I assume just by virtue of those guys being so popular that that probably gets copied by a lot of people. However, also I would say looking through decks enough on deck builder websites and just playing out there, I don't know if people actually do follow that. So I, I was kind of not really sure what I was going to hear from you guys about this. Um, Joey, you strike me as someone who probably does 
kind of make sure you have X amount of all of these things in your deck um, just because you put your lists online and probably look at them a lot more than Matt does. So I feel like Matt's probably a little bit more <laughs> looser true. with his. Does that make sense? <laughs> well, I mean, let's see if that's the case. Matt, are you very stringent when it comes to building your decks? Is there a certain you know quota for each type of category or is it a bit more freeform? Uh, it's it's fairly freeform. Um, I know one of the popular ideas is the, the eight by eight theory. Uh, I've never sat down and actually you know set out a grid, done that specifically because uh, I I always have a rough idea of you know I want this base of cards. I'll season it to this, and I, I like to play. I don't like to have a set amount. I like to see how the deck feels. I think a lot of those kind of deck building categories that people have, you know, we have to have a certain amount of this, a certain amount of this. I think those are good starting points, but I think, and, and I'm not trying to, I know it sounds like I'm trying to brag, but like, I think for somebody who's been in the format a little bit longer, you have a good idea of how any given deck's going to play. Um, and there's always cards that obviously are going to fill multiple roles. Like you might have some win conditions that also double as a uh, removal. You have stuff like uh, Bane of Progress, stuff like that. So there's always cards, I think if you, for some people, it works really well having those categories. For other people, some cards are too homogenous, really, to be stuck in one category. So I think I think they're good starting points. I don't use them very much myself, though. It's funny, Dana, to hear you say that you would expect me to be the type of person to uh, put all of these cards into specific categories and to expect a certain number of them in each deck. Because to be honest, I also think that I should be the type of person who does that. <laughs> that strikes me as a very me type of thing to do. But it's actually just sort of not the case. And you had mentioned like um, on the Command Zone, they've done a deck template uh, episode before and it was certainly very useful but even they were like look this is just sort of a guideline it's not necessarily going to be the most efficient thing at tuning your deck it's just a place to start and matt you had brought up the eight by eight theory i mean that's a really great place to start as well the eight by eight theory is a approach to beginning uh edh you would start with your commander and 35 lands you would choose eight effects that you wish to see in different categories and then you'd put eight cards in each of those eight different effects let's say that an effect might be a ramp an effect might be card draw or something like that you'd get eight of those that would lead to a clean 64 cards and boom you'd have a 100 card deck in that way um, and that sounds like a very appealing thing for my type of personality i would love to be able to put things into symmetrical boxes but when i actually started looking over all of my decks absolutely none of them conform to any deck building template that i can find they are so disparate they are so all over the place and it does feel a whole lot more freeform i don't think i've got any quotas in any particular category yeah in doing the same thing for myself i definitely found i was not following anything i do have a rough outline i want to have some of this some of that some of that but th there's the numbers in no way line up yeah, and I think that's just kind of a testament to some of these categories, and like like the Command Zone did. I, I think they even said, you know, this episode we want to help the newer players. Uh, it's specifically targeted, and I think this episode for us too. I mean, the eight by eight theory with, you know, the, the precons coming out for Commander twenty nineteen. Mm. I think it's a really good chance for us to kind of circle back to those one hundred and one moments that I think a lot of deck builders you know they kind of take advantage of, and. I, I know 100% that I have, and you guys probably have too, you know, had a moment where you got ahead of yourself with deck building and you look at the deck and you're like, oh my gosh, how did I forget this obvious card that I really should have in this deck? Um, so we just want to kind of slow it down a little bit and just what are some step A, you, you, you're graduating from your first pre-con, you want to build your own deck, what can you do to kind of have a good start and, and have a foundation to build upon? Yeah, that's a great one. So I... 
kind of just want to move into, I went through some of my decks and pulled out just some numbers and tried to figure out what the most common categories are for uh, the decks that I have, just seeing if there are any overlap. And I think I probably found five general categories with numbers all over the place. Uh, but the things that I usually found were cards. Uh, these, these are the categories of things that I usually found within my own decks. So I had a category for card advantage, add a category for mana advantage, add a category for removal, and that's including single target and board wipe removal, like mass removal. Then I had a category for protection and one that I sort of call my win con, my win condition. Those were the five categories that I most frequently ran into. Uh, you know, things that would call, draw me all the cards or get me a whole bunch of mana, but also things that would keep me alive and things that would keep other people dead. I'm kind of curious what the typical categories are that you guys found in your decks. So so looking at my decks and just kind of mentally going by the things I do when I start building a deck, I try to include 10 or more draw options and I usually don't count a thing as a draw spell or a draw option unless it almost always draws me a card. Um, Consecrated Sphinx, for example, I wouldn't count because it's such a such a great removal target. So I would tr- treat that as like a, well, if I get cards off it, great, but I'm not going to have that as something I rely upon. So I try to have 10 o- options that consistently draw me cards. I try to keep my ramp roughly around 8. Um, I almost always have 3 board wipes. I almost always have three different ways to interact with graveyards. I almost always have three different ways to remove targeted lands. I try to have one or two ways to protect my board from someone else's wrath. And I tend to run as many win cons as I can possibly find that fit within the thing my deck is doing. And in terms of targeted removal, that is probably the most flexible it looks like from the numbers I was looking at. And what I kind of discovered in looking at that category was targeted removal I run based on really how good the cards are. If a color pair or a color doesn't have good target removal options, I would just rather go without than try to force through something that isn't a good card. So like, for example, green doesn't have a ton of answers for things aside from artifacts or enchantments. I'm not running Desert Twister just to have a way to deal with other permanents. I would just go without in those cases. So I, in that case, you know, like an Orzhov deck may have, you know, 14 different ways to remove things because there's so many good spells there. And in my mono green deck has, you know, three or four. That is such an important point. That's really one of the things that I kind of wanted to, you know, <laughs> get into with this particular episode. The idea of having a certain quota can be very damaging if you are looking to tune up your decks because you might be forcing your deck to do something that it frankly doesn't want to do just yeah. so that you can meet a certain type of category. And that's just, you need to lean into the deck's particular strengths. More than anything, what I think I noticed when I was building my decks is that I found a bunch of cards that do the thing I want to do. And then I peppered in the rest throughout. I peppered in the ramp or the card advantage or the protection spells or the removal around those but i just wanted to start with whatever the core thing is that my deck actually does and you bringing up that like you want to make sure that the other options that you're peppering in aren't going too deep going too far off the deep end because yeah i think that could be really damaging to your game plan if you're making concessions in that regard yeah i mean i would wager bad cards that occasionally save you are you're better off just not having bad cards in your deck then like you're better off just running another draw spell in that slot that's always going to be useful versus a bad removal spell or something that's going to be useful 10% of the time. Yeah, I'm, oh, I'm super on board with that. Matt, how about you? What are the categories that you frequently ran into when sorting your decks? Or is that something that you even ran into? 
I, I mean, I do. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a complete, you know. He's he's not using the same Lego blocks for using Joey, but he's still using Duplo. <laughs> yeah, I'm not dragging my knuckles entirely, entirely. Um, but I, I think if I had to pick, say, eight categories, for example, I probably could come up with them. I usually start with probably four or five, though, for every deck when I'm coming up with um, a creature package is always important, just making sure that I'm getting a varied amount of effects. Um, ramp is always big. Removal, obviously, you can't really expect to go through a game and not be able to really interact, whether you consider counterspells or your removal. Um, I know for my Niv-Mizzet deck, for example, uh, a lot of my removal is just counterspells. It's making sure that instead of having to answer that threat when it gets on the board, I just keep it from getting off the board to begin with. Um, so it just depends on how you define removal a lot of times. I know you put down tutors as something that you you account for. I don't think I ever do. I think I kind of put that in whatever slot I, I need a deck to be in. I, I don't play a great deal of tutors, um, but if I need a, a win condition, I'll, I'll count a demonic tutor, for example, as, as a win condition because it gets that win condition. I, man, and I think instead of win conditions in general, I, j I just consider them haymakers. Uh, what card do I want to play that's going to have a massive impact on the board, hopefully win me the game, or at least demand an answer right then and there? I think that's more uh, how I would define the win condition category for me personally. So you brought up something there, especially when you were talking about where you would put counter spells, and that's actually something really big for me in this topic as well, is that depending on the deck the function of a card can serve a different category. So I'm thinking especially of, I have a, a Krufix deck and a Kaneos and Tiro deck. I do have counter spells in a protection category there. But frankly, I would also put my removal spells into my protection category there as well, because the function of the removal spells is to keep me alive. And all of the other protection spells that I have going on there are to you know make sure that my board is still intact so that I can then still swindle and wheel and deal with people in my group hug strategy. But that is going to be functionally different than another deck like Marin of Clan Naltoth, where I am being much more aggressive. I'm not using removal spells defensively, I'm using them offensively. So removal would get a completely different category. Uh, it would get its own separate thing there compared to the group hug control style, where a counter spell and a removal spell, a single target removal spell and a board wipe all serve the same function in my group hug control strategy as opposed to Marin. Like in a different deck, those cards are going to serve different functions, which is so bizarre to think about, but it, it really is the case. I use removal spells as fogs in one deck, and I use them as a way to make sure that I can't be blocked in another. Yeah, and I think protection can be defined very differently. Like you said, you can use removal spells as protection. You can use counter spells. I know in my Tesa Karlov deck, my protection is actually hand disruption. I use stuff like Sadistic Hypnotist to mess up keep all the important pieces out of people's hands so they can't cast that board wipe on me because I've made them discard before it was worthwhile to cast or before they can cast it in general. So I, I think a lot of these categories, they're very flexible. You, you can have hand disruption double as removal or protection or whatever you want it to be. Same way that you can have counter spells act as protection or removal or whatever. Right. And that's another thing that I kind of wanted to get into. Let's actually look at maybe some exact numbers from uh, just decks of mine as an example. Um, I was talking about Marin of Clan Neltoth. 
I've only got three cards that I would label as, quote, protection in that deck, and they include effects like Spore Frog to fog and make sure that I don't, you know, die from a big combat swing. But in my Marin deck, while I have only three pieces of protection, I've got like 15 pieces of removal because Marin is an incredible value engine. So I've got a bunch of things like Ravenous Chupacabra and Fleshbag Marauder and Plague Grafter, which kill creatures or make everyone sacrifice creatures. Because the more removal that Marin has, the more I'll be able to outdo that symmetry. Those symmetrical effects are super not fair. They'll keep everyone else's board clear, but then I'll be able to revive a bunch of creatures and keep all of their stuff dead while I overwhelm the board in that way. And if I compare that to a different deck, like uh, 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 Lord Windgrace, for example, I've only got six pieces of removal in that deck because I feel as though the other stuff that that deck is doing is so much more powerful. But the protection will have to be much more amped up because I need to keep my Planeswalker alive. Like, that's the kind of difference that you can get there, where it's just so much more value in one of those categories depending on what the deck is doing. See, I think it's funny that you talk about protection as protecting yourself, whereas you know, you're playing Spore Frog and effects like that. Dana probably wouldn't consider Spore Frog a protection spell, considering we know how he likes to use his life as a resource. And as long as you won with one life, <laughs> you still won. You're fine. Yeah, I mean, for protection, I, I'm specifically talking about things like Golgari Charm to regenerate all your creatures, or Boros Charm, or Heroic Intervention, or various protection, things to save you or your board state. But again, it's really flexible. Like, Fog is a way to protect yourself, so Spore Frog, I guess, would count. Then, like, Aether Eyes or Aether Spouts. I mean, so much of this stuff is really, really fluid, and I think if, you're, if you get too caught up in trying to pin down the specific categories... I mean, that's just a rabbit hole I think you don't want to go down. You can spend a lot of, that's a lot of wasted energy maybe worrying about the, the classification too awful much. It's almost like all these decks are personalizable. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, and that's actually another thing. The uniformity of a theory like 8x8, it's definitely very appealing, but you come into some decks where it's just like the, the premise of starting with 35 lands and then doing the 8x8 thing. Like 35 lands sounds, first of all, way too low to me, but then I've got other decks, like I'd mentioned Lord Windgrace, that has 44 lands in it. And then the number of utility lands that I have in those decks can also be different. I mean, Lord Windgrace, I would argue, probably has fewer devoted win conditions to it because some of my lands are actually win conditions. Things like the New Field of the Dead or Keswick Wolf Run. Like, I can devote my land slots to being win condition cards, so I can therefore use the actual deck slots themselves for other purposes because I've got a whole bunch of lands that completely throws the math off there. So having like that idea of starting with a certain number of lands, while it's very appealing, can definitely help people get started when you're building a deck from scratch. I'm not sure that it necessarily fits every actual commander once you start applying it directly to them, because there are plenty of decks that immediately break the mold. I mean, if I'm doing an 8x8 theory and I've got a Voltron deck and I'm only including 8 equipment spells or 8 auras, like that deck's not going to fly. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, I think people also sometimes categorize things in ways that aren't productive to their deck. They Like, I've seen people counting cycling lands as draw effects for the deck. Yeah. Um, you're drawing a card, no. but you're not drawing a card, if you know what I mean. Like, yes, you can physically... It's physically doing the act of drawing a card, but it's not putting you resources ahead. So I, I've seen that kind of thing, too, where people, like, kind of misunderstand the categories they're doing. Hey, I'm running this, you know, seven-mana ramp spell. Well, okay, yeah, it's ramping you lands, <laughs> but, like, at that point it's in the a, game, yeah. that's maybe not that useful. 
Right. Another pretty important thing to note is that like the commanders themselves are going to naturally fit into one of the categories of, of the deck. Like I, I've used Lord Windgrace as an example already. Lord Windgrace is a draw engine for me. So I can therefore use that to shore up any other draw spells that I feel as though the deck might require. Is that something that you guys have run into where the commander does one particular effect so you don't need as much of the a density of that effect in the deck? Yeah, I, mean, I think so. Yeah, my, like my Reiki History Kamigawa deck, for example, I think I have five true draw options in the deck, which is way less than I usually run. However, as long as Reiki's out, there's, you know, 39 or 42 or whatever the number is lately, I haven't counted, spells that draw me a card when I cast them. So, you know, it's you can get away with running less of one thing if your commander offsets it. Um, I remember a friend of mine used to play Gave Guru a Spores deck for, for a long time, and he only ran a handful of creatures in the deck because gave, you know, he had so many ways to manipulate the, the, the tokens that Gave made, he could get away with not running a ton of creatures. So a lot of that stuff, the commander can really tweak the numbers um, depending on what the abilities are of the commander. Yeah, I, I think my, my Omnath deck is a lot like, it sounds like your buddy's Gave deck where... I like 10 creatures I think I have in the deck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Omnath himself, itself, whatever. I mean, that that's an army in a can. I mean, I right. crank out so many creatures because of Omnath. I mean, but on, the, on the flip side, though, Tesa is 30 creatures. Just because I want to be maximizing those death triggers, I need creatures to die, and I want a varied amount of death triggers to be had. So, uh, yeah, it, it very much depends on the commander and, and what I want to be doing. I think that also brings in, like, I, I had mentioned there are five general categories that I have in my decks. We've got, like, mana advantage, card advantage. And and I'll take a quick aside to note that I'm labeling those that way rather than saying explicitly ramp or card draw. I do feel as though advantage should be looked at in a more general sense. Actually, maybe I can almost pause and we can have a quick conversation just about that. Like, I... The thing that I always want to be conscious of is that uh, card advantage isn't just represented by cards in your hand. I got a bunch of graveyard decks, and I will count in the category of card advantage anything that puts a bunch of cards into my graveyard as well. Because if I have something like a Moldrotha, or if I have a Memuplasm, or if I have a Marin that can pull those cards back out, that is why I would consider them advantage. I technically have cards, quote, in my hand because they're in my graveyard. Like, that counts as a card advantage spell for me even though it might not look like it. Buried Alive might look like a tutor to someone else, but I would probably, honestly, prefer to qualify it as a card advantage spell. Is that something that kind of makes sense to you guys? Is that something that is reflected in your own deck categorizations? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I said card draw before, and I do try to draw physically to get up cards as much as possible, but, you know, Faithless Looting is a busted card in Modern, and it's not getting you draw to hand necessarily it's just getting you better quality cards that doesn't yeah. mean fact that isn't a really good spell it just means it's not a true draw spell in terms of putting putting more cards in your hand after you cast it so like a lot of that stuff is is pretty fluid depending on how you use it and what your deck wants to do yeah i mean final parting i mean to use your example dana in Moldrotha, final parting is a tutor you find two cards find a two card combo basically Put one in your hand, one into your graveyard. I'm going to use that card in the graveyard regardless. So, yeah, it depends on, you know, I, I turned one card into two. So, it technically, yeah, it is card advantage. So, yeah, there, there's different ways to define card advantage more yeah. than just drawing cards. 
Yeah, in, right. intuition is a way different card in Moldrotha than it Ugh. is in, you know, Mistral <laughs> Ultimus or something. Definitely. <laughs> right. Uh, but anyway, back to the point I before I tangented myself, um, when I was looking at the five categories that I generally have, one of them I labeled as, quote, win condition. But that is such a, a, a loose term, and I don't expect that it's a term that necessarily exists for many other folks. It would just be sort of a, a personal way that I build my decks. Uh, if, for example, someone is a tribal player or has a very creature-heavy deck, well, every creature that they have is technically a win condition. But since I don't tend to build very aggressive decks, I will then you know, arrange everything a little bit differently, which is why I have an entire category for protecting, because usually what I'll end up doing is have some type of way to protect myself, and then I've got a set number of creatures in my graveyard that I'll, for example, recur over and over and over again to slowly drain the table away, such as, you know, recurring Coca Show or Great Merchant of Asphodel in Marin. And that isn't necessarily winning through combat, for example. So, like, that's one of my personal, you know, sort of categories about the, quote, win condition. But I expect that that's not going to be uniform for everyone else, especially if they're playing a much more aggressive type of build. In your Omnath deck, Matt, I imagine that every land is a win condition because it makes you a 5-5 that bashes face. Usually. Hopefully. Most of the time. <laughs> it, it's also been kind of my experience that the whole, the very concept of a win condition isn't something maybe a lot of players even think through until they've been playing for some amount of time. I mean, I, I, speaking for myself, my first, you know, several months to years, maybe even of playing Commander, I wasn't thinking in terms of that. I was thinking in terms of building a good deck, but like a specific way to win the game wasn't something I thought about. I just thought I would eventually win the game. Um, and I think I do still see that a lot among newer players. They build a deck and I watch them play it. And at some point I say, so, so what's your win condition? How are you going to win the game? And well, I'm, I'm just going to win. So, like, I, I think that's something that a lot of people don't really get into until they've been playing for a while. Dana, I love that exchange. So, what's your win condition? And then you, well, I'm just going to win. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the answer I've got. Like, literally got that answer before. <laughs> I'm just going to win. Sorry, that just, that's, you're, that's you're, very... <laughs> you're going to be at two life and I'll have a bear in play. Like, okay, well, that might happen. But, like, you probably shouldn't rely on that being your only way to close out a game. No, I just love the idea. So how are you going to win? And then it just feels like, you know, oh, destiny. Like, it is a, a predetermined winner. I'm just going to win. That's how. Destiny. It is known. It's in the stars. I just really enjoyed that. What do you guys think of the, quote, miscellaneous category? When people are organizing their decks, should there be a miscellaneous uh, slot that they're putting cards into? The things that they aren't sure if they go anywhere. What do you guys think about when people are sorting their decks if they have, quote, miscellaneous cards? I think that's encouraged. I think I probably have five or six cards per deck that are just, they're fun cards, they're flavor, flavorful cards. Uh, cards that don't really have a set category, but there's something that I, I just... I either wanted to put the deck because I'm emotionally attached to them or it's something that maybe it's not on theme, but it's just a, a very powerful effect. Uh, I mean, in my, my Taysa Karloff deck, for example, Smothering Tithe is man advantage, but it, it's almost a win condition by itself. And it's just a, a card that's just very generically powerful. Kind of what Dana was saying about Consecrated Sphinx. It's not really a draw engine because you can't ever count on it drawing you a bunch of cards. It's not exactly a win condition either, but it's just a powerful effect that you want to throw in there. I think there's there's always a bunch of cards in every single one of my decks that there's no real category for it. Uh, I mean, we talk all the time about uh, Piers Whim. It's it's not a ramp spell necessarily. It's not a removal spell. It's a little bit of both. So I think there's there's always a place for those flex spots 
maybe combo engine pieces that only necessarily interact with one other card in your deck, but it's so powerful you just want to have it in there. I think it's it's totally normal, and I would encourage people just to have those those flex spots. Yeah. Dana, do you want to give your answer to that before I disagree <laughs> really severely with Matt? Well, that's I, fine. I, I think flex spots for me are the most difficult one to find room for. And I'll use a card we've talked about a lot in this cast before, Sudden Spoiling. Sudden Spoiling is an amazing card that does 25 different things in a game, but also <laughs> I don't quite know what you would categorize it as. So it's really easy to not put it in a build of a deck when you're focused on getting your ramp and getting your draw and getting your removal and getting your creatures and getting your win conditions. It's really easy to leave those kind of good cards out. And I like to run them in decks, but I sometimes find myself in a position where I just don't have room. So um, I don't really have a good answer other than there's a lot of cards that, you know, kind of can be, that label can be applied to and you should try to find a slot for them. But I get how sometimes you can't always do that. Bring it, See, Joseph. Bring it. Well, that's that's just it. I don't feel as though there's there's room for a, quote, miscellaneous category. I just don't think there are enough slots for cards that yeah. don't have specific synergy. Like, there's just so many cards out there to play nowadays. And that is not to say that Sudden Spoiling doesn't deserve a spot in the deck or that Mirage Mirror doesn't deserve a spot in the deck or that Pierce Wim doesn't deserve a spot in the deck. I just think that if a card sits in a miscellaneous category, you've got a couple of lone stragglers that maybe the categories need to be either loosened or tightened so that you can figure out where those cards are supposed to go and what primary function they serve. Like, when it comes to Pure's Whim, you should know whether you are looking for a specific land, like let's say you need a way to go get a Maze of It to protect your Planeswalkers, or you need a way to make sure that there's other removal, and the fact that it gets you a land is also kind of nice too. When it comes to sudden spoiling, I would view that through the lens of keeping myself alive in terms of a fog, but that also has surprise offensive capabilities, but I would put it into a protection sort of category. Like, the, the cards that serve multiple functions, those don't feel like they need to go into a miscellaneous thing for me. Those feel like I definitely need to make sure that I know what my lines are. I have very strict rules about which cards go where, because if there is something that is, quote, miscellaneous, that means that it's probably there isn't room for it, and then my deck needs to be tightened up to get better synergy, because I just can't afford to have non-synergistic cards in my deck anymore. See, I, I'm going to push back on that, because I think there are enough powerful cards that are situationally powerful in different ways. I mean, I've put Is It Charmin in modern decks before, not because it's the best removal spell, or it's the best counter spell, or the best draw spell, but it does every single one of those modes just well enough that I'm going to come up to a situation where I'm going to want any given one of those modes almost in every single game. Dana mentioned Golgari Charm earlier. I mean, it's a mini board wipe. It's going to destroy you know, a problem permanent, or it's just going to regenerate and save you from a board wipe. All those effects are good enough that there's going to be a situation in nearly every game that you see it where you're going to want at least one of those modes. I think if you're putting the right cards in those flex spots, then it's, it's totally fine to have it not really fall into one, and it's not going to take away from any synergy because it's doing enough things just well enough that it's going to earn its, its spot in your decks. I, I'm, again, not opposed to including a Golgari Charm. I think it's a really good card. I just want to try and... I, I guess my mission here is to make sure that people are focusing really really carefully on what the function of the cards are. Because if it's in a, quote, miscellaneous category, it feels to me like 
maybe I don't know what the function of that card is, and I, I need to know when it's in my hand what purpose it's going to serve. I'll use my Crufix deck as an example. Whenever I would sort that deck into a bunch of different categories, frequently I'd you know, have a bunch of card draw spells, I'd have a bunch of mana advantage spells, because that's what Crufix does. He gives a whole bunch of mana and he holds on to it. Um, and that tech typically would have very, very few devoted win condition uh, sort of slots. Like, that's a deck that doesn't need to follow any, you know, 10 win conditions or 8 win condition, you know, 8 cards in this category type of thing, because it's drawing so many cards that I'll find the one that I need so I can have one, two, or three, and then I'll make sure that I definitely get them. But one of the things I would frequently run into when I was sorting that deck out is that I didn't know where to put the cards Vidalcan Orrery and Leyline of Anticipation, which I considered absolute must-haves for Crufix because it's constantly saving my mana, and then it wants to hold on to any mana that I don't use, so having that instant speed helps him hold on to a bunch of mana. But I wouldn't know where to put them. I just wasn't sure, what do I do with these? These don't seem to fit in any other category. And what I eventually realized is that the reason I have them is for the purposes of protecting myself. I need to make sure that if someone's attacking me, I can flash a regular sorcery speed creature into play to block it. That kind of thing. So like, even though they don't exclusively say, hey, I'm here to, you know, protect your life total or to, you know, disrupt someone else's stuff, they, that is the function that they're serving within my deck. Those spells are there to make sure that I can respond to anything so that I stay alive. And, and that's the type of thing that I'm, that I'm trying to get at. That the miscellaneous isn't a good category for those two cards in that deck because they actually do serve a purpose that is in line with many of the other cards in the deck too. So what you're saying is nothing is actually miscellaneous. If it's in your deck, it probably yeah. has a purpose. You just need to figure out what that purpose is. I mean, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Um, I, I think some cards is just not worth digging down that deep. Sudden Spoiling is good enough. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. it's like Sudden Spoiling is good enough. I don't need to figure out what category it's in. I know it's good enough. So whether I'm going to call it protection or, you know, a, a, an offensive weapon, I, it doesn't really matter. It's still a good enough card and I'm going to throw it as miscellaneous because it's not worth the, the brain power to figure out what category I'm going to tag it with. I think what my esteemed associate Dana is trying to say is, Joe, you're overthinking this. Yeah, maybe just a touch. <laughs> and, Coming uh, from a guy who overthinks stuff. Ca- yeah. Calm your britches <laughs> and just enjoy the games. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of done with that. I think that's good. But actually, there's a word that stuck out to me in what you just said, Dana, and that's offense. Um, and something that I kind of guess I hadn't really thought about was just that, like, I had a category labeled as win condition or something, but maybe a better label for it would be offense. You've got an offense and I've been saying protection, but also an offense and defense categories seem like they'd be a really good way to divide the, the things that I'm looking at. I might be uh, changing some of the names on the, the categories that I have when I'm sorting things out because there's one that is offensively proactively winning me the game and then there's one that is defensively, defensively keeping me alive. And that might be a, a better categorization than protection and win con. Yeah, I mean, like it's some just, of the stuff, like I said, is, is, is really flexible. I mean, I'm running both Aether Eyes and Aether Spouts in my Sphinx, my Asperia Sphinx deck. Um, you know, ostensibly, those are protection spells that are functionally like a fog that hits you way harder because it bounces your stuff either to hand or to your library. However, I do kind of use those offensively because many times I will you know, attack at somebody and leave myself vulnerable intentionally, both to encourage people to attack me, to draw cards off Asperia, and then knowing I'm going to punish them with the Aetherize in response. So that's a defensive spell, but I'm almost never using those defensively. I'm using those to set up an offensive play. 
that's a really great point. That's in, I'll use my Crufix deck again as an example. I was running Aether Spouts in that deck for a while, but I couldn't reliably figure out a way to make sure that people would attack me to get rid of problem permanence. And what I ended up replacing it with was the card Evacuation, because that one I could use a bit more offensively in the event that someone else was arranging a creature combo on the other side of the board. And effectively, if someone's attacking me, then what I'm going to be doing is bouncing everything on the board anyway, because that's what my deck does. My deck isn't super affected by that, by having creatures in play. So yeah, those cards do flex into other categories, whether they are offense or defensive. May- are you trying to ruin the categories that I just said I was going to use? <laughs> Dang it, Dana. I am, sorry. Everything's at flex now. Joseph is just having an existential crisis. This is great. I really am. Well, that's, this is great. I think... I think that's also some of the you know interesting things to note about this particular thing. When you're categorizing your decks and you're noticing that it's different from one deck to another, that doesn't mean that you're bad at deck building. It just means that decks are different from each other, and it's going to be difficult. Like tuning a deck is not easy, and it 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 doesn't quite make sense. But that's just the way that it is. And I'm finding out how I feel about this entire category as we talk about it. And I think that that's probably pretty normal. Well, I think the important <laughs> part isn't nece- isn't necessarily coming up with the appropriate category for each card it's just understanding the fact that all your cards better do a thing for your deck or why are they there right it doesn't really matter what the category is but it matters that you know what it's doing yeah that's that that's a good way to make me sound smart about this whole business i enjoy (laughs) that dana thank you you are welcome (laughs) thank you for keeping me grounded (laughs) uh so now i kind of want to ask when we're looking at different categories of decks different packages of cards for example are there places that you start? Like, let's say that we're starting from the category of man advantage or, you know, ramp or whatever. Is there a place that you know you're going to always begin? I mean, I, th- I think it depends on the colors. I think we can point to Soul Ring. It is the most played card in the format, just by a, a small margin. Uh, but I, I think, I mean, if you have red, you're probably going to depend more on artifact mana. If you're green, you're going to play Farseek, Nature's Lore, Cultivate Kadama's Reach, etc., I mean, and I think the talismans and all these mana rocks that keep coming out, I think you you have enough options no matter what color you're playing, you can play some mana rocks. And so it's kind of homogenizing, I think, in the ramp department these days. Yeah, I, I definitely think, I mean, green obviously has the edge there, but there are so many good mana rocks anymore. I, green has an edge, but like, I don't think it's that much of an edge for the most part. Yeah, I mean, how often... It, when we were in, when we were in Kansas City, did Joey have the most mana available, and he was playing Boros because of Smothering Dive? Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that completely happens. Yeah, I, I think there's enough powerful effects out there that as long as you're playing a certain amount, and I, I know it's it's weird to say a certain power level, but there are more, obviously ramp effects that are more powerful than others. Uh, I think as long as you're playing like a certain power threshold in any given department, and at least in ramp these days, you're going to be okay at least. And, you know, I've seen plenty of situations in the past where someone's running that deck that has, you know, 14 green land ramp sources, and they're not running hardly any draw to take advantage of it. Well, then why are you ramping so hard if you can't use it? And I think Mm -hmm. that's a thing sometimes people don't follow through on as well, realizing that if your ramp exceeds the amount of things in your deck that you can do to take advantage of it, then you're running too much ramp. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas like the, like the first thing I do when I go to deck is I put in my draw sources and the thing about card draw is you're never going to hit a point I don't think where you've drawn too many cards even if you can't hold them all for whatever reason then you're the best keeping keeping the best 7 of the 10 you drew is still better than just having 7. 
So like draw is one thing I feel like for the most part where you don't hit a point where it becomes redundant. That's that's interesting. And that's actually something that I maybe should have asked earlier if you prioritize any of those categories above the others. So you're saying that you prioritize draw more frequently than you would prioritize a category like mana advantage. Yeah. The f- number one thing in every deck I build, I, I worry about first and foremost is card draw. Okay. Interesting. And, For and, me, and to be honest, I think like that's what wins me games. I have never walked away from a game saying to myself, I would have won that. I would have won that game, but I just drew too many cards. Like that's never <laughs> happened. I I don't know. I sort of subscribe to the the black philosophy of like if I you know won the game with two life points, then I had one life point too many. <laughs> sure. And I can sometimes feel that way about the cards in my hand too. But I I do get what you're saying there. It, that, that's interesting though. I think that I would probably agree in prioritizing draw over something like ramp. But I think for me, where I begin is what I want the deck to win with. The category that I try and begin my deck building exercises with is how is this deck winning, and then the rest of it will follow, and it's all building towards that one climactic point. But I need to figure out if the deck is the type that needs 11 win conditions or 15 win conditions or only two win conditions before I figure out what the rest of the deck is up to. Matt, where are you at with I'm that? Is there a to break, priority? I'm going to break Dana's heart inside with Joey for once. <laughs> First, I know. Um, but I think I, you, yeah, I, I think about how I want to win. I think about what I want to be doing in the deck and how can I support that the best. Uh, my Miri deck, for example, I knew I wanted... Glare of Subdual, Cryptolith Rite, things that take advantage of my creatures tapping, for example. Uh, I knew with Valduk, I wanted as many equipments and just powerful effects like that as I wanted to. And I had to add draw effects later. I had to add removal later. So it just depends on what I want to do because my Niv-Mizzet deck, for example, it is all draw effects and it's all counter spells. I mean, it's just a very mean, mean deck for a mean, mean man, as Joey likes to say. Uh, so just, yeah. But it just depends on what I want the deck to be doing and how I want to be winning with it. And then I, I fill in the rest later. Sometimes I, I, I totally forget to, to put in enough removal. That just happens. Well, the one thing I will say about draw that I think is also makes it really useful is it kind of works as a force multiplier and it kind of papers over other disadvantages in your deck. If somebody has you know, two or three more ramp spells than you do in, in their deck, but you're drawing twice as many cards, then your smaller amount of ramp spells are going to show up in your hand more frequently than their greater amount of draw spells. If sure. you are drawing a bunch of cards, then your smaller amount of removal spells are going to show up more frequently than their larger amount of removal spells. So it offsets a lot of that stuff, particularly in colors, and if you don't have access to a great amount of whatever, you know, Demir doesn't have access to a lot of ramp other than artifact ramp. But if you're drawing a ton of cards, you're going to consistently see those artifacts maybe in a way that the green deck without draw isn't going to. Yeah, velocity of a deck is, is something I think a lot of people overlook. And yeah, that, that, that is very true. If you have enough velocity to get through your deck quickly, you're going to find those answers when you need them. Velocity, velocity is such a good word to use, though, yeah. because there I, I will contest the idea that every deck needs ramp and card draw to effectively sure. win the game. I'll use Perforos as an example, or Krenko as well. I think that if you're going to be, you know, devoting card slots to drawing extra cards in those decks, you're getting in your own way there. Like the velocity, the velocity of that those decks is such that you are just going to be winning the game before you would need to draw a bunch of extra cards, or you would need to have a whole lot of ramp. I don't uh, have a smothering tithe in my Edgar Markov deck, for example, even though it's an amazing card and probably a new white staple. But the deck is so fast that I don't really want all of that extra mana. That kind of thing. Right, and I think that's why we've talked about stuff. 
I mean, Faithless Looting, for example, in a mono red deck, if you're just trying to win real quick, it doesn't matter how many cards you have in the deck, or, or in your hand, I should say, but it matters what cards you have. So you're just right. trying to find those very specific cards, Tormenting Voice, Cathartic Reunion, Wild Guess, all those cards, just trying to get the right cards. Uh, it depends on the deck, and I know half of our, our points that we're saying is it depends on the deck, and it, to, some, <laughs> right. to some extent it is true, but... I mean, yeah, you could have your draw card advantage, quote unquote, being just how quickly can you find those right pieces. And I know that's kind of a maybe teetering on CEDH level talk that I just I can't speak to for Commander. But I mean, the idea does translate to more casual circles, too. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Yeah. So I had asked if there were, uh, you know, categories that you prioritize first. Is there a category that maybe you save to last? Like is removal really low on your list, for example? Uh-huh. Um, not necessarily. I, I think the last thing I do is is after I've filled, done my categories, there's usually, you know, eight to ten slots left. And then I just kind of round things out from there once I got a satisfactory amount of cards in each category that I think is important, then I, I wouldn't say that call them miscellaneous, but that's when I do things like, okay, right now this deck would really take advantage of a sudden spoiling, so I'm going to put that in. So I, I think that's the last thing I do is stuff that maybe isn't easily categorized just because it, it wasn't easy to slot in earlier. Would you say that you fill them with 10 utility cards, Dana? Yeah, yes, I might. you might say that. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, what about you? Is there a, a type of card that you tend to wait until the end to, to slot into the deck? Or is that just sort of not it? Is it is it like all of the cards are going to be put into things first and foremost with win conditions and then everything else is equal? Or is there one that you maybe like use as the afterthought? I'm, I'm not sure if I even have an answer, but I'm just curious if you guys do because you guys tend to have opinions that are cool. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm glad that you like my opinions and think they're cool. But uh, <laughs> it, for me, it depends... I, I've noticed actually since I've started putting my deck lists online, thanks for nothing, guys. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I have noticed that depending on what color I'm playing is what what I emphasize the least. Uh, if I'm playing blue, removal gets put at the back or at the, on the back end. If I'm playing green, card draw ends up being one of my my lacking areas in the deck. Red, probably ramp. I just I I. When I play all my red decks fairly low to the ground anyways, uh, but color dependency is what I've noticed. Uh, if I'm playing black, actually, like just straight card draw effects. Uh, I know I usually start with sign in blood and read the bones, but then I don't really do much after that. And we all know that two copies of any effect is not going to cut it. So it really just depends on what color I'm playing. And, and that's kind of what I end up focusing on last. That's a really good point, actually. I, re I really like that. And <laughs> I think my answer, maybe now that I'm like trying to vocalize it, will be another one of those really annoying, I'm sorry about this, uh, it depends on the deck kind of situations. Um, but if, for example, I'm looking at the mono black deck that I have, you know, Big Manadrana or whatever, she has an ability that takes advantage of 
uh, of having a whole bunch of mana. So that's what I would prioritize first because she is sort of my de facto win condition. And then I would, you know, probably as a result prioritize card draw effects last because I have a place to put all my mana. The point of drawing cards would be to be able to spend all the mana that I have, but she can already do that on her own. So that would be, you know, prioritized last compared to I need to make sure I have ways to find my Cabal Coffers combo in that particular deck. And when I compare that to something like Marin, well, Marin, I know that I need to prioritize removal, but I'll save, you know, cards that protect me. Uh, like that becomes a much smaller category and it's almost an afterthought more than anything because the removal is already going to serve half the function of protecting me in the first place. I don't need to protect myself from a big attack if I'm already sacrificing my creatures and forcing other people to sacrifice them too. That kind of thing. So it may be, again, one of those commander-dependent situations, but I also like the thing that you said about it, depending on the color, what you would save to last. And I, I do think it's interesting. I think it's valuable to look at each of those categories and note that they have different weights. They're not all of equal value. Yeah, I... I, I th- I appreciate you saying that I put it to last and I totally don't forget it at all, period. <laughs> it's totally just I I, I, I procrastinate it. That's that's the healthy way to put it. Uh, all right, well, this is awkward. Let's paper over it by moving. On. <laughs> well, one one thing I, I will note here too is some of the stuff that's maybe more important in your deck depends on your playstyle, which is something we haven't really discussed. One person's mm-hmm. playstyle might take more advantage of ramp than another person's playstyle. Um, you know, clearly, I think mine tends to take advantage of card draw, but that might not be true of everyone. So just because it's an important thing for me and useful for me doesn't mean that matches up with your commander and the way you play the game. So, so you're yeah. saying it doesn't just depend on the deck, but it depends on the player too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe. And, and again, I'm not saying like that not everything is a right answer for you personally. I still don't think your cycling land is a draw spell, no matter who you are or what your playstyle is. Or, <laughs> but a lot of the stuff does. Uh, but Dana, what if I have life from the loam and then I can cycle it and then dredge life from the loam back and then cycle some more Ooh. and draw cards that way and then get back the cycling lands? I mean, clearly you're wrong. I think life from the loam is your. I think life from the loam is your draw spell. Then you still shouldn't count your cycling lands. They're just the enablers. <laughs> I I am super one hundred percent with you. Uh, I just want to I want to give you crap because it's funny. I, I um, love when people give Dana anecdotal evidence to show him that he's wrong. It's <laughs> <laughs> my favorite thing ever. <laughs> So I had asked, like, if you're starting with mana advantage as a category, where you tend to begin, and we had mentioned, especially the low to the ground thing seems to be where we were starting, you know, in green, obviously you've got Soul Ring, but also the spells, Cultivate, Kodamas, Farseek, Nature's Lore, maybe some creature versions like Sakura Tribe, Elder, and what else, all of the low-cost ones definitely seem to be of priority there, and in non-green decks, you've of course got Soul Ring, um, Smothering Tithe if you're white, but then also the Signets, the Talismans, Cold Steel Heart has been really impressing me um, as well, if you're in monocolor, the Diamonds or the Medallions is probably a good way to go, if you're in Super multicolor fell warstone chromatic lantern definitely the low to the ground stuff there i'm wondering if that same uh philosophy applies to your draw spells as well when you're approaching your card advantage suite in a deck where do you begin there obviously of course it depends on what colors you're playing if you're in green or red it might be different uh your card advantage stuff is going to be different from if you're playing blue but is there generally a practiced place that you start from uh, the thing for example that i'm sort of leading into sort of a leading question here dana is that i know that you like to have a diversity of effects in how they draw cards like ones that draw cards specially over time and ones that do one-off effects that kind of thing is there a philosophy that you have when approaching the card advantage category um, you know, I do try to have a mix. Um, 
I'd probably lean more into one-off things that draw me multiple cards than I do repeatable effects. And like I said, I, I tend to kind of ignore creatures to a degree. It doesn't mean I don't run them, but I'm not counting them. I'm treating them as a bonus. If, you know, Consecrated Sphinx draws me cards, that's great. But, like, I don't want to rely on that because it isn't always going to draw you cards. Whereas Knight's Whisper is always putting two cards into my hand for two mana. Um, so What if it gets countered, Dana? I guess. I mean, like, I'm not going <laughs> to. Yeah. All right. That's our notion thief, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Other than those exceptions. And a good 11, it's yes, high five. Now. Right. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'll use black for an example. I'm probably going to start out with a black deck looking at, okay, I think I still think Phyrexian Arena is worth running just so you have one repeatable effect, but I, I don't want to then also run Greed and Erebos and Under City Connections. That's too many of those effects. I like Knight's Whisper and Sign in Blood and Read the Bones, but I don't know if I need every you know, possible small draw option in black too. So I just try to mix it up between things that draw me one or two or three cards and things that might draw me four or five and things that give me repeatable draw and try to do, you know, maybe one or two repeatable draw ones and three or four or five of the other ones. So, so high floor or low ceiling? Yes. I, <laughs> I try to make it be as consistently productive as possible. Good didn't, didn't, see that, didn't see that one coming. I didn't see that one coming, yeah. <laughs> uh, here, here's something that's kind of occurring to me. I think depending on the colors of the deck, that might also dictate what type of card advantage spells I am using. Um, and I know that sounds like really wash, wishy-washy, and we've been saying, oh, it depends on the commander, all whole bunch of this deck. And I, th- this episode, sorry. Um, I, I'm sorry about that and also about stumbling over my words just now. Um, <laughs> but like, I really appreciate the one-off effects in a color like black, but I don't appreciate them as much in a color like blue. In blue, I really prefer to start at a basis with things like Ristic Study, Mystic Remora, and Consecrated Sphinx. I prefer the cards that will draw me over time because I feel as though the tempo of those games is going to be different than the tempo of a game that uh, I have black in the deck um is that the case for you guys or do you think that one-off spells are still you know going to be where you begin in a, a different color or uh, i i guess i'm just like sort of wondering if you lean one direction or the other or if you still like to have that diversity i think i i've started to trend more towards the can i get the prolonged effects of a certain of draw effects especially uh, i've okay. been really impressed with stuff like midnight reaper grim hair specs in tasa karlov for example uh, in any of my green decks, uh, Guardian Project has been insane. Yeah. And that's just consistent yeah. draw over the course of the game as opposed to that harmonized one-shot effect. Uh, and so it, I've started to favor that. And, and I think that's just part of we have so many powerful cards yeah. these days. Uh, I know sometimes they might be a little slower, but if you're getting, you know, with a Midnight Reaper, you draw three cards in one turn, that's a painful truce with a body. Uh, if you draw, you know, with Guardian Project, you draw three or four cards. That's that's pretty impressive for four mana, especially in green. So it just for me, I I've started to get away from those one shot effects. I might throw in maybe two or three in any given deck just to make sure I have some of those those high floor cards. But I, I've started to look at how sustainable are my draw effects. How sustainable are, I mean, even my ramp effects sometimes too. Hmm. Okay, interesting. I I feel as though maybe I'm drifting in the other direction. I feel as though the one-shot effects are becoming more important for me. So it's interesting to hear that you're going more towards the the sustainable ones. That's that's really fascinating to hear. But I, I do like it. I think that that's a really good point that you brought up. Well, thank you. 
I'm not. I'm <laughs> not. A com- I'm not a complete buffoon all of the time. Just usually. And, and, and I do think that that is one thing that um, you need to kind of, kind of season to taste um, for playstyle as well. Like it, it's easy. Like I understand the argument about how Fraxian Arena takes you, you know, three turns to draw you the same amount of cards as Ancient Craving or something, um, mm-hmm. and that makes sense. But run a, a mix of those things. I think it, it doesn't have to be an either or. You can do both of those things simultaneously. Outpost Siege is a fantastic card that doesn't see enough play in red. And I just can't imagine not running that in a red deck just because you have access to some really good looting spells as well. You, I think you can do all of those things at the same time. That's actually... I think you're hitting upon a really good point about why I personally tend not to build red decks I mean, basically ever a lot of the best card advantage sources here in edh for the color red are going to be the more sustainable versions outpost siege stolen strategy experimental frenzy sunbirds invocation and especially number one itali like those are all incredible things that take several turns to provide the most value and i'm drifting a lot more towards the the one shot phyrexian uh not phyrexian Sorry, Painful Truths is the card that I'm thinking of. Um, and Knight's Whisper type of effects, the, the one-shot effects that definitely fill my hand up right, right now. Um, but red, for being the color of you know explosiveness, it actually has a lot of things that provide sustained value over several turns in a really interesting way. So that might be why I struggle so much with the color red, is because I'm approaching one of their main categories in a very different way that I, I value differently than you guys do. So I, I wonder if there's sort of a secret to why I suck at building red decks. Well, it is kind of interesting, though, that the way that they've, you know, Reds has sustained draw, but it's slow, and their burst draw isn't necessarily card advantage so much as it is card quality. It's almost all kind of rummaging or looting effects. Mm. Um, but it's unique. Like, I, I like that they've given that particular flavor to red versus black, where you tend to have to pay life for things, um, but it tends to be probably the most efficient draw in the game. Versus green, where it's tied to creatures, versus blue, where it's just draw, but it's maybe not as efficient as black's is. Hmm. What about we haven't addressed the color white when it comes to card advantage? And obviously, and you know, that's why white doesn't draw cards. <laughs> There's <laughs> a reason for that. But but I do think that there are plenty of ways that white can accrue those advantages. I mean, one of the things that I'm personally surprised by is that like white doesn't have more scry effects. I feel as though white should be the king of scry because it's the color of order and if it can't get cards in hand it should at least know what's definitely going to happen but anyway that's a philosophy thing for me but i do feel as though like there are plenty of scry effects that white could be taking advantage of things like crystal ball and treasure map sensei's divining top as well um it's got plenty of sources from you know aura or equipment toward sort of effects like sram pure Steel paladin mesa enchantress but not every deck is using that but there are still ways that white can provide advantage i would argue that indestructibility can be a form of card advantage because your stuff is never going away things like avacyn but also bastion protector or recursion can do that too sun titan is getting you another card into play but also just advocate is getting you a card back into play there we go yeah we are not making a callback to a bad challenge <laughs> stats that you had last episode. Stop derailing me. I'm trying to make a point. Um, I am too. <laughs> one of the things that I would uh, offer people, you know, stretch their mind about what card advantage means is also like having a place to put your mana, for example. So the card Luminarch Ascension comes to mind because that is a, if you can charge that particular enchantment all the way up with all the quest counters, you can pay two mana and get a 4-4 four, four angel into play. Like that is 
technically you playing a two mana card quote out of your hand but also not because you're activating ability to get a 4-4 beater into play just sort of like omnath can create elementals by playing a land this is another way to create an advantage on the board even though it doesn't draw you cards like there are different ways that we can think about what advantage means and i do think that those are certainly available to white it's just requiring a little bit of stretching what your you know category card advantage necessarily you know would indicate Anyway, I'll stop pontificating about what it means to be card advantage and what it means to not be card advantage. I'll just move us on now to our next part of this uh, categorization of cards, and that's removal. I had sort of categorized in my list above that I have like, ooh, 10 removal spells or something, but that doesn't indicate whether some of them are single target or some of them are board wipe. So I want to ask you guys, do you have a way that you approach removal when it comes to single target effects, you know, just one shot kill target creature versus Wrath of God effects destroy everything? How do you approach removal? It depends on how many creatures I'm playing myself, because some decks, like my Miri deck, for example, I, I can't really win if I don't have creatures on the board, so I might only play one or two board wipes. Uh, the rest is going to be single target removal, because a board wipe hurts me oftentimes just as much as it hurts the rest of the, rest of the table. My Niv-Mizzet deck, for example, I only need one creature, and I can play him at any given time, so I'm playing a few more board wipes. So for me... It depends on how many creatures I'm playing in that specific deck, and I'll play my board wipes accordingly. Yeah, the single target removal spell, I, I don't really worry about too much. I try to always have at least three creature sweepers um, in any deck I build. I think three is, an, uh, is a number where you can consistently hit one to solve problems, but... It's also the kind of thing I try not to go too deep on. Um, I'll use my Jeru deck, my Mono White Super Friends deck, for an example. That deck would be better served running 10 board wipes. <laughs> and it would be much, much, much more annoying if I did. So it, it's the kind of thing I don't want to go too deep on either, or it just makes for an unfun game experience when you're wiping the board every other turn, even if it might be the optimal play. But I do try to hit three there. Um, target removal is a little bit trickier. Um, I tend to be greedy in color combinations that have a bunch of good options, whether it's like Gulgari or Orzov in particular. I try to run as many of the good ones as I can. But like I said before, if I'm playing, you know, Mono Blue, I'm probably running Ponjify and Rapid Hybridization and Reality Shift, and I don't know what else. Maybe a Boomerang or something, but or, or um, what's the uh, capsize, maybe. Mm. But I always feel bad running capsize, so I oftentimes don't run it. I don't think I currently have it in a deck right now. Just because I would rather, like I said, just run a good spell than I would a bad spell just to fill a slot. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And something that you had mentioned earlier on in the show is that the density of effects definitely matters a whole lot. Like, if I'm in a deck that has black and white or black and green in it, then I've got a whole lot of options from things like Putrefy to Assassin's Trophy to Status and Statue to Curtain's Call and all of those. Like, there's a whole bunch of options compared to, you know, just a mono-white deck or just a mono-green deck or just a mono-blue deck. I think that's a really important thing to, to take away from that is that you have to adjust which of those gets priority based on the colors and what they have access to because it's going to be much wiser like Matt is doing to lean into something like single target removal when he needs to keep a big presence of creatures on the board. So just having you know a blanket statement of, oh, you need at least this many board wipes isn't necessarily going to be as effective when he's trying to be more aggressive, for example. I mean, you definitely want to have a certain number of reset buttons, but still, if he's being more aggressive and then my decks are being, then I'm going to be the one who needs more board wipes in my deck. Yeah, and I do think 
there aren't enough slots in a hundred card deck to run all the things you want to run to deal with all the mm. problems or or put the pieces in play that you want to put into play. You just can't. Um, you know, I have one blue deck right now that doesn't have any counter spells in it, and in part that's because I decided that I would always have one blue deck that had no counter spells just f to be different. But the deck I'm running no, no counter spells in just doesn't have room for any of them. I just like, I'm doing too many things to free up three or four slots for counter spells. Um, my Gliss of the Trader deck doesn't have any land ramp that you usually see in a green deck like Rampant Growth or Nature's War type spells. Um, but part of that is because there's no room in that deck for those spells. I'm doing too many other things. I think sometimes you just have to bite the bullet and resign yourself to the fact that I just can't do this in this deck. I don't have room for it. And it's going to burn me on occasion, but maybe the fact that your deck is so balanced in other places will win you more games than that loses you games. And also just that like in each of these categories, if you're running multiple colors, then some of them are going to budge each other out. Yeah. If I'm in black, maybe I prioritize Toxic Deluge or uh, you know Decree of Pain or something like that or Grave Pact Effects for removal. And then if I'm also in white, then Austere Command I feel like I must have. But I won't have room for a thing like Fumigate. I won't have room for a Winds of Wrath or a Martial Coup or a Phyrexian Rebirth or any of those. Even though they're all really excellent, I just feel as though with the colors I've got, I can't make room for those when I know that these other ones are already so specialized and will get me out of so many different situations they all sort of budge each other out which is really annoying because i want to play them all yeah completely that's 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 why well one of the things i think that really works nicely for that joey is like just to run 104 105 cards and don't tell anybody i mean that's wow. what joey does anyways <laughs> right, right. <No> it isn't. <laughs> but no I, I i think dana brought up a really good point um sometimes you just have to like be okay with not being able to find room for every single card in your deck yeah I, there, there's going to be cards that you want that you just you can't justify whether th that you're too busy doing tribal stuff and you just can't fit in that one random haymaker or you have that utility card. You know, I I really liked the idea of Elixir of Immortality and Niv-Mizzet and I had to cut it because I, I would just rather be winning with my lab or Jace uh, lab man, whatever. Uh, so it's just, yeah, there, there, there are cards, I think, in every single deck that I've just had to be like... <sighs> man, I really want this, but I can't do it. Trading post is that card in every single deck, I feel like. That card that you just can't justify anymore? Yeah, it, like it used to be amazing, but I think there's just so much power creep going on that you just I can't justify it. If I had 105 cards, it would definitely be there. We are definitely reaching that point in the age of EDH that like we are cutting objectively good cards yeah. that work yes. very well in the text that we play. Cards that should deserve to see it to see play in that deck but just given one particular type of strategy that we're doing just don't quite make it like we're cutting powerful cards from our decks it's crazy making I, I mean, but that's where we're at but it is i mean I, i'm no longer running putrefy in any of my decks because in the last year we've gotten assassin's trophy and win grace's judgment um mm. in, in in addition to i think there was that one six casualties of war yeah, yeah. i mean there's just so many good spells and good stuff is going to get bumped. That's just how it works. Yeah, I love all of the spells and I've got a Marin deck that doesn't want any of them because she would prefer to have her removal in the form of creatures. Right, like, yeah. I can't run good Golgari spells and it's making me sweat over here. It's crazy. <laughs> a final spark we just got in in War of the Spark, the, the Orzhov one that destroys 
Um, oh, D-Spark? D-Spark, sorry. Um, D-Spark's a fantastic card, but there's 15 fantastic targeted removal spells in Orzhov Colors. That's a yeah. lot of competition. Yeah, it, it's it's definitely a nice problem to have. Yeah, that is that is definitely true. I, I do think that like there are places for each of those cards within specific decks that are taking advantage of them, each in a very, very small way, but we're, you know, edging out tiny, tiny advantages. You know, this card is one percent better than the other, but they're both still, you know, really, really excellent. I just uh, oh man, it's so frustrating. And and here's the other thing. There are we, we just went over three very generic categories. There are tons of other categories that we could have gone into when it comes to categorizations or packages of cards, counter spells or fogs, which we did touch on a little bit earlier, or like creature buffs, things like True Conviction and Cathar's Crusade and Overwhelming Stampede and things like that. Um, equipment, Sacrifice Outlets, very, very close one to me. Like There are so many categories that you can make for these decks. Generally, though, just sort of coming back to the beginning of the episode, I had boiled them down to just those five categories, but people can also stretch those out into a whole lot of categories if they want to. If they want to have a devoted thing that says this is, you know, the the cards for sacrifice outlets, these are the eight equipment, these are the, you know, five cards that I have for buffing all of my creatures, like that also makes sense to me. I just I happen to separate mine in a different way, but however it is that other folks categorize their decks is also important. The point of this entire exercise is just to, you know, ask that you look at the roles that each of the cards in your decks are playing. Yeah, Unless I it's think... a utility card, and then you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, that... uh, utility is so vague, Matt. You can't just say miscellaneous. It doesn't make sense to you're me. You're so vague. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you think this card is about you. <laughs> yes. All right. Jo- Joey, did, this... Joey didn't get that. Joey <laughs> absolutely didn't get that joke. So on this <laughs> how, do you, how does Joey not get the, oh my gosh. Sorry about it. I would like to move us on to our final segment of the show, though, and that is Challenge of Stats. So while you guys are making references to things that I don't understand, how about you uh, You go ahead and actually wrap up with Challenge of Stats instead? Uh, how, how, we can't even make jokes that are older than Joey, which means like <laughs> three years ago, this joke already outdated itself. Please, please challenge some stats I'll while I hide my embarrassment. Stats. So I was digging through... Uh, re kind of retooling my Taysa Karlov deck a little bit, and there's a card that I I remember being very impressed with that I don't think is getting enough play. It's currently only in 236 decks total. Only 63 of them are Taysa Karlov decks, and that is Sultai Emissary. It is one and a black for a 1-1. When it dies, manifest the top card of your library. Pretty quick, pretty simple, but when you have Taysa Karlov out, you double that trigger, so you basically replace one body with two, if you're playing a lot of creatures, those manifests, you can flip those over and they, they get pretty powerful. It, it was a great, great engine. I think there were probably three turns in a row where I had, I think it was Volrath's Tower, that you can put a creature on top of your library from your graveyard. I Instead of drawing a card, I just put Sultai Emissary on top of my library because I wanted to cast that, sacrifice it to get some sort of advantage and get those two more bodies. Uh, I think if you're playing any sort of Death Triggers type of deck, uh, Sultai Emissary is definitely worth some sort of look because the card advantage that you get just getting bodies back on the battlefield is already worth it. I also really like this in a Yogmoth deck because he's sacrificing creatures to draw cards. Mm-hmm. When the creatures explode into more creatures, that's really entertaining. Matt, I know that I didn't like your Pulse Mage Advocate pick last week, but I do like your Sultai Emissary pick this week. Well, thank you. I'm glad I could redeem myself in your eyes. And this one, this is this is a newer card, and it's in less decks than Pulse Mage Advocate. 
We're not gonna linger on the pulse mage advocate. <laughs> We've been down that road already. Don't right? you mean? Uh, don't you mean advocate for the pulse mage advocate? I Joey does not advocate for pulse mage advocate. Indeed, I don't. I'm going to move on to my challenge of death before you guys continue making jokes that aren't good. Uh, so my challenge for this week, I'm going to be looking at the card Opal Palace. As much as I want to like this card, I just can't summon the will to. I think it used to be decent, but now it's just not. So Opal Palace was an old commander card, I think from the Commander 2013 set. It taps to add a colorless to your mana pool, or you can tap pay one and tap this land to add to your mana pool one mana of any color in your commander's color identity and if you spend that mana to cast your commander it enters the battlefield with a number of additional plus one counters on it equal to the number of times it's been cast from the commands on this game that sounds really cool especially when you consider cards like Hellar the fire fletcher or Skullbriar, both of which really enjoy plus one counters marchesa enjoys plus one counters the new mowu loyal companion loves having plus one counters so this seems like a land that can maybe help you color fix or, you know, provide some extra plus one counter synergies, which does sound appealing, but I just don't think it's worth it. Paying the extra mana to get the color fixing to get usually what ends up being just one plus one counter on your commander, maybe two, has just never been worth it. So when I saw that this particular card is showing up in 18,333 decks, 8% of all possible decks, I my eyes bugged out i just don't think that this card is very good and it does not warrant that much play i just don't think it's providing you the fixing i think it is a tempo disadvantage and i don't think that the benefit is worth the cost i am going to agree with you i i played this in my edgar markov deck for a while just because i wanted i wanted a little bit of color fixing that wasn't going to set me back with life and it, it it's bad it's real bad I will agree as well. I ran it in my Crash Bloodbreaded deck for a while because Crash is the one creature in the deck that doesn't natively get counters on him. So I thought it would be a good way to start things out, to take advantage of doubling season and hardened scales and stuff. And it just wasn't almost ever worth putting the man into to do that. Yeah, I, I think this card, I think it's benefiting from the pre-con effect in a big way. Yeah. Very much, yeah. And I do think it is slightly different from the card Forge of Heroes, which could add loyalty counters if your commander was a planeswalker. I think that an extra loyalty counter can sometimes be worth it, but the tempo disadvantage here for a plus one counter, I don't think so. So that's my challenge. I I think we can all agree on that one. I I don't even like Forge of Heroes that much. I, I I think stuff like that is too situational, especially when it comes to your mana base. All right, Dana, what's yours? I have a card that's showing up in 25% of Omnath Locus of Rage decks, and I think that's too many. It's Amulet of Vigor. No, that card is amazing. You're already wrong. Well, Uh-oh. Amulet of Vigor is an amazing card in a vacuum if you're just looking at what it does. But if you look at some of the Omnath decks that, that you can look at, like the most five recent ones on EDH Rex site, and, and I clicked on, on them they had almost nothing in the deck that took advantage of Amulet of, of, Amulet of Vigor. Um, yeah, there was, you know, Splendor Reclamation in there, but, like, if you are hoping Amulet of Vigor is in play when you have a graveyard full of lands and cast one at Wreck, and that's your only use of it, and that kind of was the only use of it in a bunch of those decks, it's not a good card and you shouldn't be running it. I think there there's enough cards that get a high amount of play in those decks I mean, Perilous Forays is the, is the first one. That's a way, if you have Omnath and Perilous Forays out with Amulet of Vigor, you get every land out of your deck that has a basic land type. I, I think there there's so much upside to Amulet of Vigor in, Om, in Omnath decks. I, okay. I, I think that number is actually too low. I, I, oh, my. I, I, I would Amulet say, of Vigor is incredibly explosive. 
I, I feel like it's a card that I've seen get cast and never do anything more often than it's a card I've seen get cast and do things. Sure. I, I think it depends on what else you draw with it, for sure. Um, and I mean, your Ravnica bounce lands, those again, definitely are, are a way to take advantage. And, and yeah, Perilous Forays is great, but okay, again, if you're running Perilous Forays and Splendid Rack and those are your two ways to take advantage of it, is it worth a swap then at that point? If you require those two cards, I just, I, 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 there's a density of cards in a deck where it becomes good, but if you haven't hit it, you shouldn't be running it. That's fair. I, I think there's a lot of cards that you would rather, if you don't draw it on turn one, then it's, it's, it's power definitely goes down. Amulet sure. Bigger is one of those. I think if you're looking at it as a combo engine, which in, in Omnath Locus of Rage, there's surprisingly a large amount of just powerful combos you can use with Amulet of Vigor. I think, I, I think the challenge is, mm, I don't like it. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Joey. Wait, that's to you. That, that's it. I, I I was expecting where, where's the blood and claws? Come on, guys! <laughs> I was expecting a real fight. I was expecting well, we both you guys had to play deck, so we were speaking from experience. Here, we both had that deck in the past. It's true, man. I was, I was just really hoping to see a bloodbath, but I guess you guys are too civil for it. Ugh, that's weird. It's not called okay a gentleman's duel, not a gentle person's <laughs> duel. I don't, I don't know. All right. Well, I it's interesting on both sides. I can. I do personally really like Amulet of Vigor, so I think I do side with Matt. Sorry, Dana. Um, Dang. But I also... Joey's I also, sick, guys. Joey's sick. He agrees with me twice and challenges the stats. <laughs> but I also get where Dana's coming from, that if, you, if you're not using those untapped lands for any purpose, it sort of feels like the card Unwinding Clock. Like, Unwinding Clock, I feel like you should be doing something every turn with those untaps rather than just using it to give your artifact creatures vigilance. That kind of thing. I've seen times where folks will play Unwinding Clock, untap some lands, and then never do anything with that mana. And that sort of feels like the argument for Amulet of Vigor here, too. Yeah, and I even made the caveat, too. It's It depends on what else you're drawing with it. What other synergies with Amulet of Vigor are you playing with? I think that card is just way too explosive to, to not want to play it. All right. So, fellas, I have to ask... Are there any final thoughts that you have about this topic, about sorting your cards into categories, about trying to categorize your cards? Are there any you know, last impressions that you have about sorting your cards into those different sections to see what role they fill within your deck? I do think it's a useful thing to do. Um, I think you don't want to get too bogged down in what the exact categories are, but I do think it's a really useful way to understand what purpose all the cards in your deck serve to kind of figure out what what role they play and the the next then jump from there is to just say understand what your cards are doing in your deck and why they're there because if you can't answer that question um, even vaguely it doesn't have to be an exact well this is a ramp spell but if you can't just roughly say it's doing this and that consistently then why is it in your deck and i think that's that's a really useful thing to pay attention to yeah, I mean, yeah, we, I like that. Dana's pointed out a few times on the podcast, which I, I always agree with, is just whenever you're building a deck, just be a little more intentional. It'll help give your deck a little more focus, a little more consistency in doing those things that you want to do, whether it's supporting that theme that you have, whether it's you know making sure you have all the, the right tribal effects, whatever it is, just making sure that you're, you're putting stuff in with a purpose instead of, well, I guess, I mean, I need another card, so I guess this will work. 
Right, right. And we just went over a couple of very vague categories, but there are very specialized categories in every different deck that you're going to build. And to me, it's kind of felt like largely the takeaway on this episode has been, it depends on your commander. And that doesn't feel very exciting. But at the same time, that's kind of the point. Like when you're examining how to tune up one of your decks, if you're moving away from, you know, your pre-con levels, for example, the departure from any safety blanket of a like a template or a deck building guideline I mean, that departure is necessary. This game is complicated and things don't fit into clean categories. Every commander will weight certain sections more heavily than others. It's just inevitable. And that's scary. You know, when you're building, you're not sure if you're doing it right. But at the same time, if there was a clean answer and every deck could fit into a simple template, I mean, it wouldn't be very fun, would it? So that is one of the things that's very beautiful about EDH2. And I think that that's a nice note to end on. I agree. Quite lovely. (laughs) Quite lovely. Quite quite indeed. But on that note, I think we're going to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-host so much for joining me. And if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Matt? Find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55, M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And Dana. You can find me on Twitter at Dana Roach. And you can hear me twice a week on my other podcast, CMDR Central. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. Special thanks to our editor for the show, Ken Peddle, also known as Kenish Norn. You can follow him on Twitter at Loader. That's L-O-A-D-3-R. You can follow EDHREC and the EDHREC cast on Facebook and Twitter, and you can contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com. Plus, you can find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast as well. This cast is posted every week on our community content spotlight section on EDHREC, where we feature as many other content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. (laughs) What? Nothing. Just check your slack. That's all I can say. Mm. (laughs) It's so stupid. Where is it? I just sent you guys a picture. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. God, I'm dumb.